Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 11th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by former major leaguer and Japanese league legend Warren Cromarty for a conversation about Shohei Otani, the much-hyped pitcher-slash-hitter who just signed a deal with the Anaheim Angels. The Ringer's Ben Lindbergh will also be with us to discuss Otani and the New York Yankees' acquisition of Giancarlo Stanton as part of the Marlins' latest fire sale. We'll then talk with David Epstein of ProPublica about the International Olympic Committee's move to ban Russia from the Winter Olympics and the Trump administration's posturing about the U.S. maybe, but probably not, but actually really not, skipping out on the games in South Korea. Finally, Daniel Libet will be here to tell us why he started a muckraking website about New Mexico athletics and what he found once he started digging into the seamy doings of a college athletic department. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Welcome back, Josh. Thank you very much. A couple of uh, orders of business. Um, we're thinking about doing a conundrums show as an end of the year dealio. We're coming up to uh, Christmas and New Year's. You've probably heard, maybe heard, you should have heard the political gabfest shows uh, on conundrums. The classic one is, would you rather be a fish or a tree. Um, if you have fish slash tree type sports conundrums for us, please post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash hang up and listen. I'll start a thread for that and you can hop in there. 
Um, we're also looking for an intern for um, the new year, starting in January. If you're in DC and you're interested in helping us out on Mondays, doing some research on the weekends, email us at hangupatslate.com. On the phone with us now from Miami is Warren Cromarty, who played for the Montreal Expos for nine years in the 70s and 80s before going to Japan, where he hit 321 with 171 home runs in seven years with the Yomiuri Giants, earning the Nippon Professional Baseball Most Valuable Player Award in 1989. He's also the author of the book, co-written with Robert Whiting, Slugging It Out in Japan. In his spare time, he's also working on getting a baseball team back in Montreal. Let's make that happen. Warren, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about Shohei Otani. At the press conference announcing his signing in Anaheim, he said he was honored to be compared to Babe Ruth, but in no way do I think I'm at his level. It's obviously an unfair comparison for anyone, for a 23-year-old to have to live up to that, but it's an inevitable comparison um, when you can pitch and hit as well as he can. You've watched him pretty closely in Japan. What do you make of his skills as both a pitcher and a hitter? And do you think it's a good idea for the Angels to allow him to do both? Listen, it's, it's tough enough trying to play this game here at a major league in, in one level. And um, as far as Shohei is concerned, I think his strong point, and I know his strong point, is his pitching. And for him to be playing two, two different sports, DHing and that type of thing, I understand that the Angels are going to no pun intended, kick glove him a little bit and have him DH here a little bit. But, you know, something that I don't know if it's been said, but I think Rick Peterson may have said that the pitching coach used to be with the Mets. You know, he's a right-handed pitcher and a left-handed hitter. So, you know, right then and there, the right arm is exposed when he gets into the batter's box. And it's a different ball game. It's faster. You know, Otani's five years in Japan are between the ages of 18 and 22 and, you know, the Babe Ruth comparison is obviously unfair. Let's look at his career numbers, Otani. Um, he has hit 22 home runs, been the most home runs that he's hit in a season in 323 at-bats. He's hit 48 home runs total in his career, one every 22 at-bats. Better in the last couple of seasons. Um, but let's compare that to someone like, oh, I don't know, Giancarlo Stanton, one home run every 14 at-bats for his career, one every 10 last year. Otani is a right. unicorn, and we're intrigued, and the U.S. media is intrigued for two simple reasons. One is he plays both ways, oh, my God, and two, it's that he is a foreigner, and he is mysterious. We don't know much about him. And Bob Whiting, your friend, um, who also wrote the great book about Japanese baseball, You Gotta Have Wa, told us that um, – you know, th this is something that American media tend to do. You know, it's like Daisuke Matsuzaka had the gyro ball, and now we've got Absolutely. Shohei Otani who hit a ball that got stuck in the roof of Tokyo Dome. We need to temper our expectations, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something I was going to bring up, too. You know, Matsuzaka had the gyro balls, all these other things of this nature. I, need, I want the, 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 the American public to stop with this hype because, you know, this kid's got tremendous amount of pressure on him as is. Now he's with pool holes. He's with one of the best players in the game in Trout. Um, he's got a good manager in, in the social. And uh, let's see what the Angels do Do this. This is a different ball club. and this, uh, uh, I think the upside to all of this is his pitching, to stay with his pitching. But that's a strong point. 
What do you think are the big changes in J- Japanese professional baseball um, from when you were playing back in the 80s to Otani's era today, both in terms of the competitiveness and also culturally? Is it closer to Major League Baseball now than it was back when you played? Well, I, I could tell you the difference between the two. The two is uh, in Japan – no, and, and you, you, as far as Major League Baseball, is about power and speed. And in Japan, it's, it's about fundamentals and team play. Now, there's the, the Japanese baseball has a totally different rhythm than Major League Baseball. And I say rhythm because that, that carries a lot of weight because the timing, the thinking process, the strategy, um, usually the, there's not a lot of strategy in Japanese baseball that, Say, for instance, the first guy gets a hit in Japanese baseball, 99.9% of the time the next batter is going to bunt. It doesn't matter what the score is. It doesn't matter uh, who's coming up behind the situation. That is the predictability of Japanese baseball, which I think has lost some of its luster the past couple of years as far as the level is concerned because there's no different type of teaching. And that's another reason why I think that Otani has decided to come over here in the States because you know, when I was over there, I kept hearing these things. He's bored. Warren Cromartie was a Japanese baseball MVP. His book with Robert Whiting is slugging it out in Japan. You can follow him on Twitter. It's an excellent Twitter handle. It is at TweetMeHomie. And you can, also, <laughs> you can also check out his Montreal baseball project, trying to bring a team back to Montreal. That's on Twitter also, at Montreal Baseball Project. Warren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Joining us now for the second part of our uh, Otani conversation is Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. What's up, Ben? Hi. I'm happy to have any transaction to talk about. It's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So the thing that's really fascinating about this Otani move beyond what's happening on the field, the economics of it, um, every team – like if as a major league general manager you weren't interested in getting this guy, you should just – immediately fire yourself. This <laughs> yes. is the biggest bargain um, maybe in in recent major league uh, history for somebody who's um, as like well-developed of a player he is. Um, the other thing about it is that it's like really crazy that he um, chose to forego so many millions of dollars by going to the U.S. Um, a couple years early. Can you explain to us the economics of this deal and how it makes so much sense for major league teams and so little sense for Otani. <laughs> yeah. So the current collective bargaining agreement has extremely tight restrictions on international spending for players who are younger than 25 years old, as Otani is. So every team has some amount of bonus pool money that it can spend. But even the team with the most money to spend had about three and a half million dollars to spend as a signing bonus. And then after that, Otani is basically like, any other player you would draft, essentially. It's a a minor league contract. He has to go through the pre-arbitration years, the arbitration years. He's several years away from free agency, which is where he would have been if he'd been 25 or if he'd waited until he was 25 to come over. And at that point, assuming he didn't hurt his arm catastrophically or something in the meantime, he would have been in line for hundreds of millions of dollars because he is not only probably the most attractive pitcher on the market, he is also a skilled hitter too and he's young and he hits the ball incredibly hard and has great stuff so everyone wanted him there were a few teams that didn't try to get him which as you say 
is pretty inexcusable. But... Even if you don't think he's going to be like that good, you still want to sign yeah, him just because of what a bar like. Sure. Just do it just to show your fans that you tried, even if you don't think that you're going to get him. And there are some teams that had no chance. Just go through the motions, at least. But if he's like a league average major leaguer, this is like an amazing bargain for six years. Yes, right. And he has the potential to be considerably more than that. So, yeah, he's the best bargain that we've seen come along in a long time. And it's because of these restrictive international spending rules that basically put the money in rich owners' pockets instead of, in some cases, impoverished foreign players. Now, he's not impoverished, but he's certainly impoverished relative to what he should be making. Stefan, you mentioned um, when we were talking to Warren Cromartie about how he could have stayed in Japan. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, he just could have stayed for two more years to hit that 25-year-old uh, cutoff and become an unrestricted free agent, and he would have been able to sign with any team in Major League Baseball for those hundreds of millions of dollars that, Ben, you just mentioned. Right. Um, when you evaluate – I mean, I guess there are two ways of evaluating Otani. One is sure thing – Got to flip a coin. Either he's going to be a good major league pitcher or he's going to be a good major league hitter, and maybe he's going to be both, mm-hmm. or maybe he won't be. Maybe he will not be able to master the far more difficult, demanding rigors of major league baseball. Um, we don't You're know. Such a hater, man. I am a hater. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just being, being, you know, devil's advocate here. Um, but Beyond that, too, the one thing we haven't talked about is the marketability factor for someone like Otani. If he is playing both ways, mm-hmm. who's not going to want to tune in to watch that? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a marketing proposition, the Angels were incredibly lucky because it sounds to me like Otani wanted to go somewhere on the West Coast so he could get to Japan more readily. He wanted to be in a warmer market, so uh, L.A. instead of Seattle. And he didn't want to be in a big media market. So now the uh, Los Angeles Angels have two of the best players potentially in baseball, neither of whom will be our big hits with the media. Right. Yeah, we still don't exactly know why Otani chose the Angels. He said he felt a connection with them. That's about as as specific as he got. So it's hard to say how they landed him, but they're not asking any questions. I think they're happy to have him regardless of the reasons. Is he arguing that Anaheim isn't a big media market? (laughs) Compared to the Dodgers, I think. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I've heard from so many people already, including myself, that suddenly the Angels are the team that everyone is going to want to see. They're like the automatic all MLB TV team of 2018. If your rooting interest is not currently in action and you can choose from any of the other 14 games going on, you're going to throw on the Angels because they've got Mike Trout, they've got Andrelton Simmons, they've got Shohei Otani, they've got Albert Pujols, and it's sort of morbid curiosity in Pujols' case at this point. That's one of the most fascinating aspects of all of this is how the Angels will shoehorn both Pujols and Otani onto this roster because, of course, Pujols has been almost exclusively a DH recently. So that's going to be a question, but you're right. I mean, there's really no question about his pitching talent. There's some question about his durability. He was hurt last year. He didn't pitch a whole lot. Japanese pitchers in NPB pitch on a more lenient schedule than major league pitchers do. So there's been some talk of maybe a six-man rotation to go a little bit easier on him early in his major league career. But certainly the stuff, the 100-mile-per-hour fastballs and the fork balls and the sliders, it all measures up to a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. And we know that he hits the ball extremely hard. There's just some question about, well, can 
he make contact? Is his swing a little long? And it's it's harder to forecast, I think, how a hitter's abilities will translate from NPB to MLB than it is for a guy who just throws 100 miles per hour, and that's going to work wherever you are. I'm going to ask you for a quick forecast in a second, but first, uh, two thoughts. Number one, aren't the Arizona Diamondbacks sitting there going, we're warm, we're on the <laughs> West Coast, and nobody pays attention to us? Arizona's this is, on the West Coast? Look, his choice of the Angels is inexplicable. This would have been just as inexplicable and would have uh, been in a smaller media market. Well, so Mike Trout FaceTimed with him. So maybe Mike Trout, in addition to being the best player in baseball, is also the best recruiter. <laughs> Paul Goldschmidt needs to up his uh, FaceTiming <laughs> his face game. Time game. My right. other thought on that is, obviously, it makes sense for him to go to an American League team because he can DH um, and he can do that on days that he's not pitching. It's like totally sensible, but it's going to totally deprive us of him hitting and pitching in the same game, mm-hmm. which is what he could have done if he had gone with the Josh Levine um, Arizona Diamondback. He plan. still can do that. They're not going to let him. Obviously, they're not going to let him yeah, do that. Why not? Why wouldn't they let him, Ben? Well, they wouldn't want him to hit on the days that he pitches because then if he exits the game, they would lose the DH, essentially. So you'd have to have the pitcher hit from that point on. So that would handicap you if he doesn't go deep into the game. And he, But he's only going to be pitching complete games because that's, he's Shohei Otani. That's possible, too. And he probably can't play outfield with the Angels because two of their best players, Justin Upton and Cole Calhoun, are corner outfielders. So that sort of blocks him there. So that's a a bit of a concern. There is actually a, a case that you could have made that he would have been just as valuable to an NL team because in the NL, he would have been hitting less often potentially, but you would have been comparing him to the baseline of a pitcher and pitchers are yeah. terrible at hitting. Right. So if you look at the relative value, he would have been far better than the typical pitcher, even if he wouldn't have been hitting as often. The value might have been equal, but he wants to hit as often as possible. We should move on to to Stanton, but um, maybe what they're trying to do here is like allowing him to DH a little bit in the beginning and then... Maybe they'll be like, "Oh, it didn't work." Right. And now you're now you're a pitcher, That's a risk. but they have to like at least <laughs> yeah, at least let him try to do it. All right, on Jim on, Car- on the flip side, there he's not being paid enough money to necessarily not say, "Ah, oh, screw that, I'll go back to Japan." <laughs> uh, on Giancarlo Stanton, who is being paid a lot of money, um, this trade is being uh, lambasted mm-hmm. from a lot of uh, of different corners from the the Marlins side. They didn't get that much back. From the Yankees, um, your colleague at the Ringer, Mr. Uh, Michael Bauman, yes. said it's not a baseball trade. It's a liquidation of assets. Mm-hmm. He was upset. Yes. Um, do you feel like all of this opprobrium is uh, deserved? Well, I think we can kind of evaluate the return that they got for Stanton a little bit separate from the strategy that's going into trading Stanton and everyone else on their roster right now. I think Stanton is probably worth a little less in terms of player return than most people would assume because most people look at him. He's the reigning NL MVP. Of course, he's going to be bringing back your top prospects, but not necessarily because contract matters and money matters. And Stanton has the biggest contract in baseball. So his surplus value is not as great as it would seem. And remember, he's coming off a career year. He'd never been as good. He sometimes had some issues with durability. There are questions about how he's going to age, et cetera. So I think given that he had this no trade clause that he really kind of had them over a barrel because he only wanted to go to these four teams and they didn't even need him that much. So the leverage was really all on Stanton's side. I don't know that the Marlins could have done all that much better, but 
I just think there's a lot of justifiable skepticism about why they have to trade him in the first place, why they're talking about trading younger and more affordable players like Christian Yelich and Marcelo Zuna, why they traded D Gordon already. And it just seems to come back to the fact that they bought this team and assumed $400 million in debt, which you can blame partially on the previous owner, catastrophic owner, Jeffrey Loria, and maybe partially on the fact that they're a little bit underfunded. Yeah, we've seen this movie before in South Florida, which is what makes you feel so skeptical that this is a baseball um, driven decision. It clearly isn't a baseball driven decision. I think the Marlins even said it's not a baseball driven yeah. decision, but it it just conflates as sports do today, the reality of these financial arrangements that burden franchises that the fans are not always uh, uh, in tune with. I mean, we know about you know payroll problems, and we know about teams trying to get younger and to uh, to to tank in order to do well. The Astros, obviously, being the the best, most recent example of that, but. The, you know, the, the, the ownership burdens and the debt burdens are something that do tend to fall by the wayside. Back to Stanton, though, my question is, does this threaten in five or six years, Ben, to be an A-Rod type deal where the Yankees are going to be stuck with this guy in his mid-30s um, where his production doesn't um, reach the level that we saw. Yeah, that's certainly a, a realistic outcome here. Again, there's some evidence that guys with his build, he's a, a very big, tall guy. Maybe they don't age quite as well. And of course, he has had issues, some freak injuries, some, you know, getting hit in the face or getting hit by balls, but others just kind of the usual hamstring pulls and groin pulls and that sort of thing. So he's never been durable and he's never had a season quite like this last one. So as he ages into his 30s, he has this complicated contract. And if he does not exercise his opt-out and he's on the hook for another decade or so, then yeah, it could certainly get ugly at the end here. But of course, the Yankees are hoping that he'll make up for that on the front end of the deal and that they'll get some extra value there. And also they're the Yankees, so they can afford that sort of thing. Right. So all of this talk about the Yankees desperately wanting to get under the salary cap, uh, salary penalty threshold seems to be a lot of good talk, but they still yeah. might, right? This may not be a short term, as short as burdensome short term. Yeah, they definitely do want to get under that, that luxury tax threshold. And that's part of the reason why they sent Starlin Castro back to the Marlins in this deal so that it would not count toward their luxury tax spending limit. And those penalties have gotten a lot stiffer in the more recent CBAs. So that is a real consideration, but obviously the Yankees are much more able to take on that burden than most teams are. So on the field, you've got Stanton and Aaron Judge together now. You've also got Gary Sanchez. And there's one other player, like if you combine four Yank four of the 2018 Yankees, they had more home runs cumulatively than everyone on the Red Sox <laughs> uh-huh. last year. Um, I've, I saw some projections about what Stanton is going to do in Yankee Stadium, which is an extreme hitter's park, that if you translate his 59 home runs in uh, South Florida and elsewhere last year, you can get something north of 70 in Yankee Stadium. Um, what, are, what should we look for from 
the Yankees power hitters last year? And what do you think is a reasonable high-end projection? Well, for I don't want to be a buzzkill, but I, I think probably 70 is unrealistic. I actually saw some analysis. Sounds like you do <laughs> want to be a buzzkill. I can't kill. avoid being a buzzkill. But Mike Petriello at MLB using StatCast data did some analysis where he took every fly ball that Stanton hit last year over 300 feet in Marlins Park and sort of superimposed it on Yankee Stadium. And it turns out that in Stanton's case, he wouldn't have hit any more home runs in Yankee Stadium. And I think that's because Stanton is sort of an outlier. And you could say the same for Judge. These guys hit the ball so hard and so far (laughs) that park factors don't matter for them so much because they're hitting the ball so far over the fence that whether it's a shallow fence or a deep fence, it's gone anyway. So, you know, obviously it works in his favor, but I don't think you would project him certainly to top last year's total, which was obviously a a career high for him. So it's going to be a lot of back-to-back and possibly back-to-back-to-back home runs. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch if you're a Yankees fan and a lot of fun to hate if you're not. All right, with Stanton going to New York, there are going to be a lot of repercussions on the free agent market both this year and beyond. One thing that people are thinking about is what does this mean for Bryce Harper when he becomes a free agent? But also there are a lot of really good hitters available um, this year, like J.D. Martinez is one that comes to mind. Um, What do you think the effect will be on other players and other teams because of this deal? Well, I think the floodgates are about to open with free agents. We saw an extraordinarily slow, historically slow November when almost no one of any import was signed. And I think that was because every team was waiting to see what would happen with Otani and with Stanton. So many teams wanted these guys and didn't want to go after their plan B until plan A was off the board. So the winter meetings start today. And I think you're going to see a lot of guys come off the board very quickly. And yeah, maybe this takes the Yankees out of the Bryce Harper market which they've been presumed to be in next winter. Maybe they figured they'd get their shopping done a little bit early, but that's a year away and a lot of things could happen. And there's always the DH slot, so you never know. All right, I asked you for a projection on Otani, Ben. Maybe you can give us like uh, a ribbon, the the Otani ribbon. Like what what are you expecting? Like what would be a good performance from him on the mound um, and at the plate this year? I think anywhere in the, say, four to six wins above replacement range, so say half of Mike Trout, essentially, would be great and probably realistic. And you could maybe even say toward the bottom end of that range. I mean, I think that statistically his pitching stats are going to match up well with Tanaka, with Darvish, with Nomo, with the best of the Japanese pitchers who've come over before. But he has not been a workhorse. He's only going to throw so many innings. He's coming off an injury-plagued year. And I... As much as I want him to get a lot of playing time at the plate and to make a big impact there, I think it will be difficult for him to get enough playing time to really add a lot of value in that area. I think if he's DHing a few times a week, for one thing, the typical DH is a pretty good hitter, so he'd have to be considerably better than that to really rack up a lot of value. So I'm going to guess that he's worth something, say, four wins-ish, three to four as a pitcher and maybe another one as a position player. But I just hope he does enough to establish that he's capable of doing both, that he can then get maybe an extended shot at doing that in the future. You you don't want to see him get locked into one one role this year, because I think with each successive year, it would be harder for him to break out of that mold. Thank you, as always, Mr. Lindbergh. Ben Lindbergh is a writer for The Ringer and also host of the Ringer MLB podcast. Uh, 
He's got the video game podcast. What other podcasts, Ben? All the podcasts? That's enough podcasts for today. Ben Lundberg, thank you. Bye. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we are going to prime the pump for our sports conundrum conversation. The conundrum we will be assessing. Start thinking about it now, friends. Which ball slash puck slash sports implement would you yourself like to be? Think about it, Stefan. You're thinking? I'm thinking. To hear that conversation. Got it. Please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. You might see the International Olympic Committee's decision last week to bar Russia's Olympic team from the upcoming Winter Games in South Korea as a severe and appropriate punishment for operating a state-run doping campaign reminiscent of East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Or you might say that banishing Russia's flag, uniform, and anthem from the Olympics, but not its athletes, is toothless political grandstanding that does nothing to address the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sports. Joining us now to resolve this debate once and for all is our friend David Epstein. He is a former reporter for Sports Illustrated and the author of The Sports Gene. Hey, David. Hey, thanks for having me. To me, this feels like a classic case of the sanctimonious IOC trying to have it both ways. It can say it dropped the hammer and sickle on Russia, but at the same time, create a loophole that lets Russians compete wearing neutral uniforms, whereby Vladimir Putin can say they're still Russians competing for Russia, glory to Russia. No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we still need to see how it's going to play out because we don't know how many Olympic athletes from Russia, as they're going to be designated, will actually compete in the games. Because the idea is athletes who can prove that they were not part of this doping operation which seems kind of impossible to do, actually, um, will be admitted to the games. But for the most part, you know, I kind of see this like it has a lot of – there's like a lot of sound and fury with it. But um, it would be like if Wells Fargo for their shenanigans is like, you know, renamed Fells Wargo for a year and then at the end of the year can still report their earnings, you know, under their original symbol and all those things. So they're even talking about allowing the Russian flag um, at the closing ceremonies. So you'd see these – and and – Probably Russia's most famous athlete, Yelena Isinbaeva, the world record holder in the pole vault, is already saying, telling athletes, we'll wear our Russia gear at the closing ceremonies. Right? And I also so, read that they were going to let Russian the Russian delegation and officials come toward the end of the games. Right. So, I mean, at, at, the, end, at the end of the games, the medal tally for Olympic athletes from Russia is going to be put under athletes from Russia, right? And so... Unless they really allow only very, very few or no athletes in, I don't really see this as, as much of a punishment. I mean, it's sort of like a scarlet letter, but everyone's going to still be there. What do we know, if anything, about the state of, um, you know, doping in Russia today? Like now, after all this having been exposed, have or do we have assurances or do we believe that things have changed and are different now? Well, I think there's probably some evidence of that, and partly 
their operation has kind of been disrupted and a lot of their really good athletes are definitely not going to be competing. So for one, even if they were doing the same thing, you've a lot of their great athletes are are not going to be there because they're facing punishments. More of them are going to face punishments. And I think it, one aspect of the Russian investigation I think was actually good, which is that they had to start sneaking, you know, cups of pee out of mouse hole in the lab right. because – Sochi during the 2014. Ex- exactly. Because – they were surprised that they were actually more athletes than they thought were getting caught by the biological passport, you know, which is this new method of testing that looks at tests over time. And so that's why they had to resort to this really old method. And so to me, that kind of signals that for once in the technological war, we're actually making some progress that they had to resort to this, you know, really old school, just sneaking stuff through the wall. So, you know, I think it's probably better, but still... Um, the Russian anti-doping lab has not turned over all the samples that WADA has requested. So I think there are definitely still examples. Like that's ongoing right now, which is crazy because they've been asking for it for a long time. So there's still definitely signs of noncompliance. If we look back at the last Olympics, the Summer Olympics, we had a similar debate. There was already a lot of information out in the public about the scope and scheme that Russia uh, used, utilized in Sochi during the Olympics. In that case, the IOC let each individual sports federation decide whether athletes should compete or not, right? 278 Russian athletes were allowed to compete in Rio. Remind us, David, what Russia was attempting to do and the number of athletes that we know have been found to have been using some sort of performance-enhancing drug. I mean, basically, they set up a system whereby athletes, if they wanted to be on the national team, didn't really have a choice if they wanted to dope. So they were given drugs often by coaches or officials. Many of them didn't even know how to use it. I mean, I reviewed an athlete's personal regimen who didn't know how to inject things appropriately, and so they probably weren't even working for her. Um, and if on the, in the occasions when athletes did test positive, right, the head of the lab was told by any means necessary, we're, we're not going to repeat the embarrassment of the last Winter Games where we didn't win a lot of medals. And so they would tamper with samples, uh, hide positive tests, sneak um, urine samples through the door. And basically the whole team seems to have been pretty much doped, maybe with a small number of, obse- of um, exceptions. Uh, and it's only sort of a small number of athletes have been individually suspended related to that. But I think the investigation suggests that this really was almost every athlete on their national team. And even athletes that wanted to refuse didn't really have a choice if they wanted to be on the national team. So isn't there an argument then that the way they've constructed the punishment is actually logical? The idea is that um, these athletes um, were compelled to do this. They didn't really have a choice. You know, as you said, it's not even clear that some of them got an advantage from what they were doing. Um, But this was a state-sponsored system, and the state should be punished. And it seems like they've at least tried to come up with the solution to accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, you know, in this case, there's no question that there'll be some collateral damage. Like if you banned the whole country, there'd be some athletes who probably were clean, um, who get banned, maybe a small number. But you really can't prove that any Russian athlete is clean at this point. And the question is, what do you create as a disincentive for a country to do this again, basically? And I think that should sort of be um, the operative goal at this point. And with respect to Rio... Uh, the IOC sort of passing off the decision to federations was just total passing the buck. Like, mm-hmm. That's a total nonsense. It's not in any normal procedure that they have. And so I think they really haven't disincentivized the country very much. Yeah. And they, they stand the possibility of not disincentivizing a national doping program 
um, again, because minus a few whistleblowers, they would have gotten away with this with pretty light punishment. Is the problem, Dave, WADA, its existence, its funding, who's on it, who's doing this work? Sally Jenkins wrote a, a column in the Washington Post the other day that excoriates the IOC for this decision and pins a lot of the problems on the way they deal with drug testing. She writes that you'll know the IOC is serious on this subject when it declares a blanket temporary amnesty for the purposes of studying some very hard questions such as what is the difference between enhancement versus therapy and recovery? Have the effects of certain substances been overstated or overcriminalized? To what extent, if any, might legalization actually relieve the pressure on athletes in state-sponsored systems? That's those are interesting and important questions, but I don't see how those really relate to WADA's core function. For sure, there's stuff on the list that is not performance enhancing and stuff not on the list that is performance enhancing. But, you know, sports is about the standardization of the rules, not like the standardization of drug policy in the entire world, because some of these drugs are legal in some countries and not in others. And WADA can't change United States law to be in line with, you know, Spanish law on substances. So I don't that's not really in WADA's purview. What WADA does is they maintain the list of banned substances, the procedures for intelligence gathering and giving penalties, and they certify labs. The work on the ground happens with national anti-doping bodies. WADA, I think, was um, making progress for a while, and I think they've made a lot of progress in um, systematizing the way that information gathering can happen uh, from whistleblowers in return for reduced penalties and things like that. Um, but I think they started going backward when Craig Redia, you know, an IOC board member, became the head of WADA, I think they lost some of the ground that they had It gained. took a long time, though, for WADA to begin to deeply investigate the allegations by the Russian whistleblowers. This goes back like seven years, right? No question. And I, again, I think that really has to do with having someone heading um, the agency who was deeply conflicted. Right? There, there's not always an IOC board member is not always the head of WADA. And when they are, that's just like such a no-brainer conflict of interest that I think it's pretty easy to see why it wasn't investigated in a timely fashion. So where can you affect some sort of impact on a country to disincentivize doping, especially as it changes from cycle to cycle, from games to games, from, from competition to competition, the level of effectiveness of both the drugs used and the level of effectiveness at evading the testing system? Or should we be having a fair, a reasonable conversation about, well, maybe we don't need to do this. Maybe they shouldn't be punished at all. Well, I think you can start by, I mean, banning Olympic athletes from Russia this time around. Again, there will be some collateral damage. Uh, but it's, I think there's an aspect of it that's also protecting the athletes who don't want to do it, right? Because right? they could end up in the same just sort of less formalized system um, this time around, and if the anti-doping labs themselves are in on the corruption, that's going to be a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough road to hoe, I guess. Right, because the, the the answer there is that it's your government, your sports administrators, your coaches, your fellow athletes joined in this massive conspiracy to violate the rules and norms of sports as we have established them right now. You're a clean athlete. Yeah, there's going to be some collateral damage. Yeah, I mean, you know, we still have whistleblowers who had to leave the country and are hiding out. And and again, there are samples that still aren't being turned over and all these sorts of things. Um, the other thing is anti-doping, the World Anti-Doping Agency, which I think for many years was actually making legitimate progress, now, you know, has a head who is um, a member of the IOC board. And that they, they were getting information 
you know, in like 2010, there was a meeting to recertify the Moscow Anti-Doping Lab in 2013 where it was known that there was a whistleblower source. And if the whistleblower wouldn't sort of identify things about themselves, uh, then WADA and the IOC wouldn't hear their testimony and these sorts of things. So there's a problem um, of a lack of independence, especially when the WADA head happens to be a member of the IOC board, as, as is the case. All right, let's talk about the politics of all of this. Vladimir Putin has said kind of surprisingly that if athletes want to go to uh, South Korea, Russian athletes, and compete under a neutral flag, he's totally cool with that. I don't know if he's going to stick with it or if kind of as we've discussed, he realizes that their success will redound to Russia anyway, so it doesn't uh, really matter. But um, Or he can even make greater political hay out of them competing under a neutral flag and then say they are Russians. Yeah, perhaps. So here in the U.S., Nikki Haley um, said last week, maybe we'll send our contingent to uh, Korea. Maybe we won't. Yeah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the same thing. This, I think, was more about saber rattling with North Korea than um, with this uh, Russia situation. But um, Stefan, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that it's really not the administration's decision. Um, the, the administration can try to influence what the U.S. Olympic Committee decides to do, but the final vote is made by the USOC about whether to attend an Olympic Games or not. In 1980, Jimmy Carter came out and said that we you know, urged the USOC to boycott the Olympics, but it was a USOC vote that enshrined that into reality. Maybe the State Department will put a travel ban on for South Korea. From a competitive standpoint, um, I'm thinking back to 1984, when uh, the Soviet Union didn't go to the games, Los Angeles looking at this extremely hilarious medal table where the U.S. had 174 total medals. Next was West Germany with uh, 59. The U.S. had 83 golds to Romania's 20. There are not as many medals on offer in the Winter Olympics. So uh, our American heroes are not going to rack up uh, such a huge uh, margin here. But is this going to affect the medal table? How many medals were the Russians likely to win? And are those going to get redistributed to the USA? I think think it is going to affect the medal table a lot. Russia had nine golds in Sochi, 22 medals. Four years before that, they only had three golds um, and about 15 medals. But especially, I think it will affect the medal table in women's sports where – Russia has been especially strong in both summer and winter. Um, so I do think the U.S. might pick up a couple extra medals. But o- overall, it, it will affect the medal count. I mean, Russia is, uh, even in their bad years, you know, when they won three golds and 15 medals, they're still a powerhouse um, even uh, even when they're not as the powerhouse they were in Sochi. But that, that depends on who ends up going and who ends up a- not absolutely. going. Which federations don't let athletes go because they've failed drug tests or – or, or come up with some other standard for, for whether they'd be allowed to go or not. I do know that the athletes won't like it one way or another. I think that there's probably a, a consensus among particularly some American athletes who have been cheated out of medals. I think the, the Russians have been stripped of, what, 11 medals since November from, uh, from Sochi, a feeling that they shouldn't go at all. Eleven. Because we don't know. Eleven medals, and again, they're not turning over a lot of the samples that Wada wants. So eleven is, you know, we're nowhere near finished with that. And you know, Americans pay attention to the Olympics every four years, but all these people compete in their world championships. So when they think about the number of medals they've lost, if they're really, really good, it's multiple. It's not one Olympic medal. So 
Uh, I think when when we consider letting athletes, Olympic athletes from Russia into the games, um, yeah, that's not going to go over well with a lot of athletes. This will be the first Olympics with Trump uh, as president, and it'll be interesting to see how the athletes respond because we haven't we've we've seen all the controversy around you know Steph Curry and will they, will they or won't they go to the White House, but athletes competing under the American flag at the Olympics, if they choose to do so, denouncing Trump and the United States government would be something the likes of which we hasn't, haven't seen in a very long time. No, that's right. I mean, think of there's going to be a lot of Americans uh, with close face shots for the national anthem. Um, Standing and, on a podium. Yep. And, and if somebody kneeled, my God. Yeah. Or raised a fist. I mean, yeah, I think – Dave Waddle in like 1972 that he was the, uh, an American who won the Olympics in the 800 sort of forgot to take his hat off, I think, when he was getting the medal or something like that. And it like scandalized him. Or that you was know? his signature. And, and he wore his hat. And yeah. he totally forgot. Um, you're not allowed to make political statements in the Olympic Village. You know, like in 1968, the, the gloved fist, um, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, they got sent home. Um, so you can do it. And then they have to choose if they want to throw you out or punish you after that. David Epstein is the author of The Sports Gene. He used to write for Sports Illustrated. David, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last year, a former staff reporter for Politico in Washington who lives in Chicago started a blog about sports at the University of New Mexico. But unlike most college sports-centric blogs, NM Fishbowl hasn't concerned itself with the Lobos 3-9 and nine football season or the loss-filled start of the men's basketball season. Instead, its mission has been to hold the athletic department and the university accountable, which it's done in 50-plus posts, most of them based on public records requests and interviews with unnamed sources. Daniel Libet is the creator and sole proprietor of NM Fishbowl. He joins us now. Hey, Daniel. It's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. In the blog's 13 months, among other things, you've investigated the uh, tainted pasts of New Mexico's football coach Bob Davey and basketball coach Craig Neal. You obtained exit interviews with athletes who described coaches who blocked them from rigorous majors and fat shamed them. And you published basketball recruiting expense reports that revealed $12,000 in trips to Australia, because that's the thing these days, Australia. This is exactly what local reporters are supposed to do, but too often don't because they're writing about the three and nine football season and the shitty start to the basketball season. Why did you decide to shine a very narrow light on this one university's athletic program? Because it's where I'm from. I'm, I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This was the team I grew up rooting for. I didn't attend the University of New Mexico, but even when I went, I went, I went to college at the University of Wisconsin. But even when I was at Wisconsin, this was my team. So part of this was my own reconciliation with having a, a philosophy on college athletics and, and maybe how it should, should be covered, um, but then also having my baby, 
my uh, the, the the college sports team I root I rooted for since I was a kid, and uh, at a certain point it was it was it was interesting to try to eat my own in this process. The other thing that was interesting about it was um, I knew that this was not a very well covered college athletics department. Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, is a bit of a media desert, and so I figured I could kind of come in uh, fairly easily and do kinds of stories that had not been done um, to an athletics department that had not really ever experienced scrutiny in any way. The best post that you did, I think, and Stefan alluded to it in his intro, was the one on the exit interviews from University of New Mexico athletes that you got via a record request. It tells a very specific story. Um, you pulled out the best tidbits from those anonymous exit interviews. Um, there are stories about women athletes being told that they need to lose weight, slim down, calling them Dorito eaters, um, fat shaming them, as Stefan put it. And then there's another strand in there about athletes over and over and over again talking about how they have no academic freedom and that this is something that really concerns them, that they can't necessarily take the classes that they want, that maybe they were told going into the school that they would be able to do this. And then the reality hit when they got to campus that it wasn't um, the case. And so this is an example of local reporting via um, record request that both shines a light on you know a, what's happening in a particular school. But this is a big issue across all of college athletics and one that I find like particularly galling and offensive when people talk about amateurism and the student athlete. So I just wanted to give listeners a sense, you know, or have them understand that you did this, praise you for it, and maybe ask for a little bit more information about those exit interviews and why you found them to be so revealing. So uh, I have made so many records requests and a lot of it, um, you know, one thing leads to another. I mean, I've made probably on the order of 200 or so records requests since I started this whole thing. And to be clear, the records people there probably hate your guts. They, they, yeah, they're, they're not too thrilled with me, um, to say the least. Uh, but I, it, in a chain of emails I was looking through from one records request, I saw a mention about these student-athlete exit interviews, which I was not aware of up to that point. Basically, at the end of the year, um, at the end of the uh, athletic year, for every NCAA uh, school, uh, they are required to do some sort of process of interviewing outgoing senior uh, athletes across the spectrum of the sports and then compile information based on that, which is really just supposed to be used internally. Um, but I took a chance that maybe there were some documents related to that that might be uh, interesting. And sure enough, uh, the faculty senate council that interviews uh, UNM athletes took down notes for a number of years. Uh, they, since I made my request, they no longer do that. Um, <laughs> but And uh, the notes were interesting. So these were not straight transcripts. They were more just uh, summaries of the yeah. kinds of input they were getting from student yeah, they were they were bulleted, basically, lists. Right, right. Bullet point comments. summaries of, of different kind of grievances and, in some cases, uh, praise that the athletes were, were uh, sharing. Um, and it, it is sort of the stuff you would suspect. The, the challenge always is that you can never really, as a reporter, get athletes' 
in college to answer questions candidly. They're just never in a good situation to do that. I mean, when do reporters talk to athletes? They talk to them at, you know, post-game when the athlete is sitting right next to the coach. Um, by the time the athlete leaves college, they really don't have much incentive to speak honestly or candidly about their experience. They're done with it. Maybe they want to maintain a relationship with that coach. They're not going to talk shit about their program. And so there's just this this vacuum of kind of insight uh, because of, of that dynamic. And so this felt like one of these opportunities where you could actually get a, a more honest look at things, and it, it, you sort of summarized it perfectly. It was, it was a lot of the kinds of things that we would suspect um, are athlete complaints around the country. I want to stick with the athlete interviews for a second because they really are a summation of, like you said, the grievances and problems that we would expect at big university athletic programs, and yet ones that university presidents and athletic directors and coaches make no effort to correct. So you very helpfully... And Can I just I, interrupt for a second? Yeah. It's it's so telling that the effort that they made to correct this was not keeping the records anymore. Right. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't right. to address right. the problems that the athletes, that the students, I'm not going to say student-athletes, that the students raised here. It was to prevent us from finding out that the current crop of athletes feels the same way so that we can take some corrective action and improve the university for everybody. Um, right. And you, right. You, you well, know, yeah, and so what, what the first thing that they did in response, I, I wrote uh, two stories mm -hmm. off of this because I got these uh, athlete exit interviews in two batches. And so the first thing they did was they didn't comment, the university didn't comment, the coaches who I reached out to who were sort of more directly addressed in the uh, criticisms of the interview notes didn't comment. And then they wrote this just stupid response um, that they posted on the university's athletics website that basically sort of made it out like I was harming the athletes by revealing uh, their confidential input, um, even though they were all anonymized, right. no athlete was named in the notes. Right. I didn't know who the athletes were specifically, and quite frankly, couldn't even figure it out if I tried. Um, so it was sort of a classic uh, shoot the messenger uh, strategy. And now, you know, and since that time, they were trying to figure out how to conduct these athlete exit interviews without actually writing anything down. So Mark Tracy of the New York Times wrote a nice piece about you a little while back, and he included this um, description. He said, to read his work, to read uh, Daniel's work, was to see a gleeful spirit of muckraking, a fondness for 10,000-word posts, and a penchant for grandstanding about his legal battles. I'll leave it to others to uh, remark on the grandstanding part. But no, I that's a fair characterization. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it to Daniel himself to acknowledge the grandstanding <laughs> part. I wanted to ask about the fondness for 10,000-word posts. I thought... Mark, I don't, you know, I think Mark's a really good reporter. I don't know if you should have to run a correction for this, but I counted, and your um, piece on Craig Neal, the basketball coach, his relationship with Governor Susanna Martinez, that was more than 18,000 words. Yeah, so I, 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 part of having your own blog is you can be highly self-indulgent. And so, uh, yeah. I, I would, I, uh, the the wheels came off a little bit on my uh, self editing there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think the blog is great. I think you're great. I would definitely characterize that post as self indulgent. Um, and I wanted to ask <laughs> you, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, did you feel like in the exit interview piece, you did an amazing job, an unbelievable job of highlighting 
the tidbits from these like long record requests and also like making the kind of larger point about um, college athletic athletics and what, um, you know, this situation in New Mexico represented in a larger sense. In that Craig Neal, Susanna Martinez piece, as somebody who doesn't particularly know or care that much about that relationship, there wasn't that much for me to sink my teeth into. And so I was wondering when you were writing stuff like that, did you feel like the audience for for that material was smaller? Do you feel like um, there could yeah, have been more of an, an audience. effort? I mean, that was really for a, a, a the, the audience in uh, at the university. I mean, there was there was this is a sort of ongoing grievance that had been discussed on campus and really within you know kind of the chambers of New Mexico politics about this kind of perverse relationship between politicians, the university, and the university's athletics department for years. And and you know it, it you know I just picked UNM because it was my hometown school, but it really kind of just. I mean, you could you could eat all parts of the buffalo here because there was just so many problems even beyond the athletic department. So, you know, it's a university in a poor state that's in crisis, and it's had a leadership problem for two decades going. And so uh, that story was sort of me just receiving lots of of just this kind of these grievances from people, you know, kind of high up in, in academia in, in the university and in, in people who have been around UNM for a while who just felt like this is a, a giant swamp and um and so yeah, that was that was a story for them, and and not yes. I mean, if if you you really have to care about the University of New Mexico to to right. wade through uh, uh, eighteen thousand words on all of the <laughs> not strange for, relationships. Not for me, for people in New Mexico, you you'll uh, you'll like it. So, <laughs> I wanted to ask a broader question about the constituency for reporting like this, um, and about your thoughts on how extensible it is and whether it would work and other places. So there are local papers that do good reporting on college athletics. There are also these like pay sites um, that focus like largely on recruiting and football and men's basketball that fans of the school will be interested in paying money to hear like good news about what's going on at, you know, LSU or Texas or New Mexico or, or wherever. And so I'm wondering like, what is the audience for this stuff? Like, I think it's great. But people in the local market, they'll be like, this dude is like trying to take down our program. And if he succeeds, that means I won't be able to watch football or men's basketball because they're going to be on probation. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's I don't know the, the market in terms of, you know, scaling this to uh, an audience of, of eager consumers. But, but, you know, one of the things I, I sort of dawned on me in this process is that there's still quite a few college sports reporters around the country at, in local newspapers for all of the cuts and layoffs. I mean, we're talking about dozens and dozens of people employed around the country who just cover college athletics departments. And you're employed to cover a, a, a college athletics department. It's part of a public institution. There's actually a, a, a value in covering this journalistically and scrutinizing it as a public institution. Why don't you just go about doing that? And so, you know, I mean, yes, I, I realize that there's pressures on newspapers. People start bitching about the coverage and threatening to cancel their newspaper subscriptions, which are already happening anyway. But I figure, you know, the, the, the people who should be doing this are, are the people who are 
college sports reporters at newspapers. But they, um, but they this get... work is doable, and uh, quite frankly, it's 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 the one thing left to still be done. Right. This work is doable, but it's also hard in a daily sports context. And that's not to excuse the failure of local reporters to do this kind of work. It's to recognize that both their own you know, internal biases and desires sort of jibe with the broader desires of a fan base, which is to know more about, you know, where a, a player came from or why the quarterback didn't do so well last week. You know, the mundane quotidian stuff that occupies most sports writing. Um, it, it really does require some sort of persuasion to 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 generate this kind of reporting and typically it comes from outside of the sports beat um outside of the the reporters that are assigned to cover the university's sports teams so breaking that pattern is what is uh is what's crucial here and i think what you've demonstrated is that Look, it's not like New Mexico is some particular cesspool. It is like as ordinary as any other <laughs> That's college right. campus. That's right. Counterpoint, New Mexico is a particular cesspool. Well, but. it has been well, at, at times. It, it didn't start out. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was not, it's not a known cesspool, right? I mean, it, it's, it's had its moments, has right? It has cesspool tendencies. <laughs> right, right. But I, I, and I, you know, part of this is this was kind of throwing a, I had my own reasons, but this is essentially throwing just a dart at a map and saying, I'm just going to cover that place. You know, it wasn't, this wasn't a, a known hotbed of, of corruption and scandal. Right. And, and the scandal and the, and the corruption there is pretty universal. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you would imagine finding in lots of other athletic departments. Yeah, a lot this of is, it's very mundane. It's, right. it's, it's, it's run-of-the-mill stuff. And, 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 Mexico, and I, I think specifically is... did not want, you know, I, I think only in two stories did I even reference NCAA rules. I mean, I, I very specifically yes. was not right. going to chase scandals of, of the kind of classic paradigm of, yes. you know, improper benefits and things like that. Is, I, I, really I, actually, I actually made this as a note for a question to ask you because it is really important to distinguish between NCAA rules nonsense, the the shaming or nailing some athlete usually for some dumbass rule in the NCAA's labyrinthine rule book scandal, versus scandal in air quotes, scandal in air quotes, you know, the kinds that we see over and over and over versus the kinds of publicly accountable behavior by administrators and coaches and university presidents. Yeah. And so that's very, yeah, that's very important to me. I, I wrote a, a piece several years ago for uh, Columbia journalism review called the scandal beat where I talked about how college sports was being covered um, and interviewed a lot of the folks who were sort of at the front lines of these NCAA scandals uh, in, in the form that, that you were just describing, you know, the, the NCAA rule book scandals and the players getting money, money under the table and things like that, and how I thought that this was ultimately kind of counterproductive towards addressing what the, the fundamental problems of college sports are. And so I'm very conscious in, in, in having done this website where I, I was not interested in that. I mean, I heard a whole bunch of stuff that I could have probably uh, wrangled an NCAA violation out of, and I, in many cases, intentionally ignored it. And it's like, you know, at some point, you just got to pull yourself up by your own ethical uh, uh, laces here and, and think, is, does this actually matter, or is this just covering kind of corporate rules? One of the patterns that local college beat writers fall into is the uh, adoration or the 
the, the belief that when a new coach is hired, it sort of erases or mitigates everything that's happened in the past. Um, we certainly didn't see that with Greg Schiano at Tennessee because of an outrage from the public. Um, but one of the, the, the notable lines of inquiry that you pursued over the last year was tracking and talking to people about the pasts of the football coach Bob Davey and the basketball coach Craig Neal um, to try to get them held accountable for their careers. Yeah, no, I, I think to extend the point even further, I think there's just this very permissible way that college sports reporters, or maybe sports reporters in general, are towards their subjects, where it basically, if it's not said at a press conference, there's this attitude that it can't be reported. And certainly things that have happened beforehand, you know, are, are sort of forgiven or whitewashed very easily. Um, this is just this is all the interesting stuff. So, yeah, you get a new coach. They get these wonderful stories, laudatory stories written about them at the beginning. Um, and and people don't really do much digging. There's almost this assumption, well, that's the coach. What's the point? Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, so so Craig Neal um, had a, a interesting uh, past uh, where he had developed a lot of, of critics around college athletics who thought him to be a, a self-serving egoist, um, I guess more than even the normal college basketball coach might be. And, and then Bob Davey, the football coach, um, had a real interesting history of getting his various uh, employers into uh, legal trouble um, with various lawsuits and things at the, at the schools that he, he had been an assistant coach at, um, up to the point where he was at Notre Dame. Uh, in the mid '90s, as the head coach after Lou Holtz, and uh, and got the school uh, snagged in a age discrimination lawsuit uh, when he told a uh, offensive line coach that he didn't want to be kept on, he didn't want him to stay on because he was too old. Um, and so these were things that were known. I mean, a lot of the things, especially with Davey, were national stories at the time. Um, but no one, truly, I think no one in Albuquerque knew about these things, and the reporters didn't do much to, to look in the, in the past histories of the coaches. And so, again, it was just another thing where all this stuff was just lying around, just waiting for somebody to pick up and write into a story. All right. Two final things for you. Um, first, I know you're interested in taking this someplace else as far as like making it bigger, bring it to other schools. You know, this is a, this is a money loser for you, right? Like there's no ads on the site. Um, oh, it's definitely a money loser. Yes. <laughs> um, so how do you do that? Like how is the answer to just like get buy-in from places that do have cash rather than um, trying to do it as an independent operation, or like is, it, is it sort of crowdfunding? A, is this or? a ProPublica kind of endeavor? I mean, is how are you yeah, pitching this? A, yeah, to scale it you're you're uh, scratching out exactly what I'm sort of trying to figure out right now. I'm I'm, I'm sort of in conversations with uh, one entity about a plan to kind of create a national website uh, using their funding model um, for how to do that. Um, and perhaps some of their uh, their resources, but yeah, th- th- this is this kind of falls in that trough of maybe interesting journalism projects that don't have a natural uh, consumer base, or where the consumer base is not necessarily going to be so game to uh, to pay for this this kind of content. So uh, um, for now, uh, yeah, I'm 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 with everybody else trying to sort of figure out how to how to bring this to uh, to a wider 
a wider audience and figure out how to pay for it. But I, I think there might be there might be something aborning in the next uh, several months. Last thing from me is if you're willing to share, um, public record requests can be made by the public, and um, people often don't realize or understand. You know, Deadspin has done great work. You've done great work here. It's there's an increasing awareness that like anyone can send a request to a public university athletic department. Um, and, you know, if they have responsive records, they're at least supposed to send them to you. What is an example of a record request that someone could send to a school that maybe they yeah, don't know Yeah, sure. About? So most states have pretty similar uh, public record laws. Some require, do require that the requester is a resident of that state. I know that's the case for like Tennessee. Uh, most states don't. You can send them for you know, anybody who's in the United States can send a public or even internationally can send a public records request. Um, I'm very interested in emails. I, I, you know, now, once you kind of put people on the, on the beat of this, they stop sending emails, and that happened to me at UNM, or at least they claim to stop sending emails. Uh, so they're not sending emails. They're not taking notes. What are they doing? How are they doing their daily business? Sm- smoke, signals smoke signals and, uh, and nudges and winks, yeah. Um, all training but, but you know, find, identifying an interesting point in time where there's some activity going on in, let's say, a college athletics department. I mean, right now we're in this this uh, maelstrom of all these crazy coaching hires um, and firings going around the country. I mean, just target the week in which you know a, a uh, one of these crazy decisions are going down and, and, and try to identify who's making those decisions and, and try to find their emails, their email correspondence between those, you know, let's say a, a set period of a, of a week or two. Um, let's and, say and also, you're in you Tennessee. Get something interesting, you might get something that will lead you down the road to, to something else. Yeah, let's say you're in Tennessee and you may want to make a request for emails over the last, I don't know, what do you think, just two, three weeks, four yeah, weeks? that would be a good one. Hmm, that would be a good one. Daniel Livett is the creator, sole proprietor of NM Fishbowl. Daniel, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks so much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, we mentioned near the top of this program, that Shohei Otani is going to be the first major leaguer in a very long time to try to be a uh, regular as a pitcher and a hitter. There is an illustrious, glorious tradition of this practice in uh, Major League Baseball. It's just very, very old and outdated. Stefan, you've been perusing the baseball reference list of two-way players. Who do you have for us? Um, Apparently, Babe Ruth was like the last one to do it regularly. But in the 19th century, there were a plethora of two-way players. I've settled on Bob Carruthers, five foot seven, 138 pounds. Very precise measurements. I appreciate that 19th century. Do, do we have measurements of his cranium? <laughs> <laughs> Batted left, threw right, played for the St. Louis Browns. He got his nickname, though, and this is my favorite part. He got his nickname Parisian Bob in the 1885-1886 offseason. He was on the St. Louis Browns, and he held out negotiating with the Browns owner 
from Paris, France, via telegram, Parisian Bob. <laughs> Stefan, what is your Parisian Bob? Well, we didn't get to the World Cup draw on the show last week while you were away, Josh. I will recap. Iceland got group of death. Portugal, Spain, Morocco should be fun. Mexico could be three and out. But enough about the teams. While more FIFA cronies were testifying about bribery schemes in New York and Russian soccer players were getting linked to state-run doping, the Fédération Internationale de Football staged the usual ridiculous ball-picking spectacle, the bad songs, the native dancing, the sportocrat accents. But it was no match for the shambolic draw for the 1982 Spain World Cup, where the cages with the balls wouldn't open and they screwed up the placement of the South American teams and decided to start over, or for the star-studded Italy 1990 draw that featured Luciano Pavarotti and Sophia Loren, or for the Brazil 2014 draw where the FIFA MC's sidekick was the scantily clad host of a talk show called Amor e Sexo. Or for the draw for World Cup 1994 in the United States. That event was held in Las Vegas because, as tournament organizer Alan Rothenberg told Roger Bennett in an ESPN story, a FIFA sportocrat named Guido Tognoni loved Las Vegas. U.S. soccer was trying to drum up interest in an event that they weren't sure the public would be interested in. So in addition to the usual ex-soccer stars, it hired actress Faye Dunaway, New Year's Eve guy Dick Clark to host, with musical numbers by Stevie Wonder, James Brown, Vanessa Williams, and Barry Manilow. That was all as inoffensive as it sounds, but then to grab the plastic balls with the names of countries that would be slotted into the final spots in the six groups of four teams, out came comedian Robin Williams. I don't remember watching the draw in real time and somehow have missed the video over the years, but let me just say that the seven minutes of Robin Williams interacting with our favorite sportocrat, FIFA president Sepp Blatter not only stand the test of time, but are better to watch given all that has transpired since. The next voice you will hear is a young and trim ESPN anchor, Bob Lee. Let's go down and complete the draw now of the teams out of the pot mark number four to complete the grid. Robin Williams! Mr. Blatter? So nice to meet you after feeling you for so many years. Nice to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're full, yeah. I guess. Good. All right. I'm... Oh, look, the world's largest kino board. <laughs> now it is time to fold the blue balls. Yes, that's it. Alles klar. Alles klar. Alles klar. Stop, stop, not yet. Stop. Stop. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Hold on. Okay. It, hold on. it is not yet time for Aladdin. All, not, not yet. yet. Okay. Not hold yet. on one moment then. <laughs> we okay. wait. We just have to get ready. All right. Robin Williams is my FIFA spirit animal. He nailed the Sepp Blatter sportocrat accent before I even knew there was a Sepp Blatter sportocrat accent to be nailed. And I'm sure that Williams knew nothing of FIFA or its corruption or its pomposity, only that he was assigned to do a bit with an old Swiss guy named Blatter and decided that the only approach was the easiest, lamest grade school pee joke routine. At the end of that first clip, Williams is walking over to his fishbowl and he snaps a rubber glove onto his right hand. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at the end of the draw, but it's very important. We are happy to have you. Robin, that's wonderful. Or shall I say, Mrs. Doubtfire? Oh, thank you, Mr. Blatter. <laughs> Funny, I met you just in the men's room a minute. 
Our bladder is reading off of index cards and laughing nervously. He's obviously not expecting the off-script irreverence, which he probably can't understand, let alone compete with. I mean, what are the odds that our straight, supercilious sportocrat even knows what Mrs. Doubtfire is or what the blue balls joke was about? The balls in the fishbowl were actually blue. Or that Williams is mercilessly mocking him and the whole overproduced charade. Low, I would say. Can we go? Are we ready? I'm ready, but not okay. yet. Okay. When I put stop. my... Oh, stop. Okay. Stop. We have in this pot four. Okay. You must also give me a small time. time. One chance. Okay, please. One chance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. He gives me a chance. While Williams mugs and goofs, Bladder reads the names of the six teams with great solemnity, yammers about FIFA's principles. Finally, it is time to grab some balls. So we will start with the draw, please. All right. Take one out. If you'll turn your head to the side and cough. (laughs) Great. Thank you very much. (laughs) 8.0. Bladder holds these slips of paper aloft and dramatically announces each name. The doddering Swiss uncle gushes pervily over model Carol Alt, who's one of the celebrities charged with pulling the pot numbers out of a bowl, along with actor Bo Bridges, big star, Sepp calls him. 1991 Women's World Cup star Michelle Akers is there, as are IndyCar racer Mario Andretti and gymnast Mary Lou Retton. Welcome back to the 1990s. Every time he hands Sepp a new ball, Williams mugs and jokes. He says bingo when Bladder opens one ball and pantyhose when he opens another. That was a reference to legs pantyhose, which came in an egg-shaped plastic container. And one more time, for good measure, he says... Mr. Bladder! It's not really funny at all, and it is super (laughs) uncomfortable to watch this. One writer, though, Bill Dwyer of the L.A. Times, wrote that Bladder rose to the occasion and was a brilliant straight man. Oh, my God. I guess that at the time, knowing nothing about the arrogance of Sepp Blatter or the corrupt cesspool of FIFA, that it was possible. Or comedy. Or comedy, (laughs) that you might reach that conclusion. But knowing what we know now about the smug, criminal, self-important jackals who run international soccer, inviting Robin Williams to your very, very serious tournament name-picking ceremony is a self-own for the ages. I only wish Williams had said the magic phrase, it is not possible. Josh, what's your Parisian bob? On August 23rd, 1934, the United Press Newswire moved a story with a Long Beach, California dateline. I will now read you the story in its entirety as it appeared in the Nevada State Journal. A death duel between a scorpion and a black widow spider today was underway in a Long Beach garage where the scorpion was caught in a spider web. The fight started yesterday when the scorpion lunged at the Black Widow and became tangled in the net. The spider immediately went into action and at noon today had spun sufficient new web to lift the scorpion three inches from its position at the start of the battle. C.A. Pastorius, owner of the garage, said he thought it a three-to-one bet that the Black Widow eventually will be victorious. Now, Stefan, it is no exaggeration to say that over the next few days, This death duel between a scorpion and a Black Widow spider in a Long Beach garage captivated America. Okay, it might be a very small exaggeration, but there were a huge number of stories published about the death duel 
as it developed, and it took some remarkable and frankly terrifying twists and turns. And I can say with certainty, my friends, that for a few days in August 1934, scorpion spider death dueling became a spectator sport with heavy betting action. August 24th, the United Press hits us with another update, one that erroneously refers to these beasts as insects rather than arachnids. But we fight on Dateline Long Beach, a desperate battle between two deadly insects, a scorpion and a black widow spider, passed its 45th hour today with scores of onlookers laying heavy odds that the little spider would emerge victorious. The two killers fought a patient battle waiting for the chance when one might pounce upon the other and in the fight with one quick thrust. Although the spider had given away almost three times its size and weight to the scorpion and had spun a web around one of the scorpion's pinchers and was gradually enmeshing its lethal weapon, the stinger, in the thin thread. The grim battle taking place in a nasty corner of a large Long Beach garage. Good use of adjectives here. Betting odds were four and five to one on the spider with few takers. All right, August 25th, our intrepid, unbylined United Press reporter is still there, still on the scene. At this point, it's like we're in the middle of one of those interminable cricket test matches. And we know the Black Widow, at least, would be up for eating crickets. Back to our story. Dateline Long Beach. A deadly scorpion (laughs) and an equally lethal Black Widow spider locked in mortal combat for three days in a dingy garage here battled on even terms tonight because of the widow's error. While crowds pressed about, the widow proceeded calmly to knot the scorpion in the web she was busily spinning. For three days, the fight was entirely on her side. Late today, she even succeeded in enmeshing the scorpion's deadly stinger attached to his lashing tail. But the widow grew overconfidence as her spinning proceeded with a calmness that belied the deadliness of the battle. She forgot the scorpion possessed two flashing foreclaws. Suddenly, the crowd stood aghast as the widow, dangling six inches from the floor, allowed herself to sway too near the claws. One claw snapped out and she was trapped. The widow's spinning stopped suddenly. She was helpless in the scorpion's grasp. But those who had their money on the widow, and there were many, refused to concede the battle to the scorpion or even admit it was a stalemate. The scorpion, they pointed out, can't really hurt the widow because his stinger is tied up in her web. And even if he wriggles the tail loose, his present position is such that the stinger couldn't reach the widow. They were still dangling, silent and motionless, as the crowd settled down for an all-night vigil. Some newspapers ran photos, and the scorpion was indeed much bigger than the spider. The caption in the Daily Capital News from Jefferson City, Missouri, noted the large claws of the scorpion vainly trying to break through the silken-like ropes while its tiny captor stands by. I like your tiny captor voice. (laughs) Okay, get your bets in, Stefan. I'm going with the spider. I'm sticking with the spider. (laughs) Another United Press dispatch from August 25th. This is where our story is going to end. Dateline Long Beach. Underdog in its four-day struggle with a deadly black widow spider. A venomous scorpion rallied. Scorpion rally. And was about to deliver the knockout punch today. Uh Uh-oh. When the Humane Society ended the bout with chloroform. (laughs) (laughs) On the short end of 20 to 1 odds. At this point. Who had the Humane Society? <laughs> what was Vegas giving for the Humane Society? Um, I think 
I think it's off the board at that point. I think they've got to suspend suspend action. I don't know. On the short end of 20 to 1 odds, the Scorpion today staged a belated rally, which freed its deadly stinger from the silken web the spider had woven around it. The Scorpion was within an inch of its opponent when city prosecutor, they sent the main guy, John K. Hull, stepped in the ring. I'm sorry, boys, he said. To the Scorpion and the spider. He said, prosecutorially. But the Humane Society has complained about the show. The battlers were then sprayed with chloroform and the fight was over. Victory, however, would have been a hollow honor for the scorpion. The winner was under sentence of death as both insects are poisonous to humans. Fair play. Um, Let me just finish reading the whole thing. We've come this far. There's a little bold header in in the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. Error by spider. Until late yesterday, the spider held the upper hand and had woven an imprisoning web around its much larger opponent, even to the point of enmeshing the stinger on the scorpion's tail. Betting odds among the spectators increased to five to one as the black widow finished tying up her adversary. Resting then for a moment on a silky strand, she swayed too closely to a free foreclaw. The scorpion caught her quickly and held her there helplessly, but it could not free its stinger to finish the fight. The spider already had lost a leg in the grim battle. But her general condition was much better than the scorpions. The latter seemed groggy and appeared to be losing strength. Thus brings us to the end of the spider-scorpion death duel. There's a lot more to get into. There was a story written in Time magazine, uh, believe it or not. Why wouldn't I believe that? John K. Hull, the city prosecutor, um, had previously been involved in an engagement with someone's pet lion. This is definitely going to be my next book. But if you had uh, bet your money on the Black Widow, or the Scorpion. You're going to come out a loser, friend. All right, I have a question. The Humane Society's answer to ending this battle was to kill the animals? It's the most humane thing sometimes, Stefan. Rather than let them fight to the death, just put them out of their misery. Whose misery? The winner of the victor would not have been miserable. The victor would have been victorious. As they're both poisonous to humankind. Look, we can all look back... 83 years later and say we would have done things differently. But John K. Hall and the Humane Society were just doing what they thought were, was best. Can I also add, Josh, that the, the dramatic reading section yeah. of that afterball, yeah. turn that into a children's book yeah. because I would want to have that read to me over and over again every night. Done. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford. To listen to past shows, subscribe, reach out, or do less to the death. Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Post your sports conundrums for our end of the year show at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Also, let me encourage you to escape into someone else's problems for a while. No, not Stefan's internal debate about whether or not to exchange his tiles. I'm referring to the problems voiced on the Dear Prudence podcast hosted by the great Mallory Ortberg. If you like Prudy on the page, you will love her in the ear. Find it at slate.com slash Dear Prudence and listen to new episodes each Tuesday. For Stefan Fatsis and the dueling arachnids, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zama Beatty, and thanks for listening.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 